welcome to Elder Health Connection, a podcast where I gather innovators in elder health care to discuss their unique perspectives on caregiving and care receiving. My name is Caroline Morris, and I use my combined experience in biochemistry, physical therapy, health coaching, and growing up next door to my grandparents to dig deep into the complexities of aging and then draw out practical solutions that can fit into your life. I record this show from my home in Alexandria, Virginia, sometimes with the input from my dogs, Benny and Barry. Thank you for joining us today. The new year is officially underway and it's the perfect time to start thinking about your vision for what you would like 2022 to look like for you and who you would like to be at this time next year. If you'd like a little help with this process, head over to carolinemorris.com vision for a free visioning exercise you can do to help you figure out who you want to be this time next year. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Sandra S.U. Caps, the co-founder of IP Collaborative. For over 40 years, Sandy has worked in the physical therapy profession, both as a clinician and an educator. But more recently, her devotion as a member of her family care team for her own mother and other relatives has led her to commit to sharing resources and lessons learned from these experiences. And boy, does she ever share her lessons and resources with us in today's episode. I think what I appreciate the most about Sandy is that she is such a strong advocate for both the growth of healthcare professions and professionals in general, but also for the patients engaging in the system. And she does a lot of work at both levels. So teaching new physical therapy students and has another service line dedicated to helping patients and their families and caregivers navigate the healthcare system. So what you'll hear from her is how she is driving the system to improve, what she's learned along the way of what's already happening. And then at the end, she gives us some really practical tips for how to engage with the system as it is today to get the best outcome for ourselves and for those we love. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Sandy as much as I did. Hi, Sandy. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good morning, Caroline. Thank you. Good morning. So we were connected by Perry Brubaker, who was featured in episode five, if you want to hear more from her. And she thought that we would be good people to know each other because we're both PTs venturing into non-traditional physical therapy um, domains, looking more broadly at healthcare. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your path professionally and where you are now? Okay, so it's been uh, 40 plus years. So it's a long, a long path, a very good and gratifying path. I started my career in 1981 as a physical therapist assistant 
and ultimately went to PT school and have split, just in summary, have split the 40 plus years between clinical practice and academia. So teaching in physical therapist assistance and physical therapist programs, education programs, primarily they're working with clinical education. So still keeping that connection between classroom and clinic. And I really went back and forth. And much of the time I did both. And as a result of kind of having this diverse background professionally, it occurred to me a few years ago that maybe I could put something together if I chose those things where I feel like I have the most to offer and where I'm most enthusiastic about. And so I, I took those things and packed them up and started my own company called IP Collaborative with IP being interprofessional because I think, I think we can, no, I know we can do better when it comes to working collaboratively as healthcare team members. Wonderful. So what are some of those things that you're most passionate about? One of the biggest things, and I was just, as we're talking, I glanced at my website and it always warms my heart to see there's a photo there of one of my sisters and our auntie. And one of the things that I learned is that I didn't know very much about truly being a caregiver for, for chronically ill or elderly loved ones. I have worked my clinical career most of the time has been in post-acute, so skilled nursing or subacute care, inpatient acute rehab, home health, and hospice. So I mainly have worked in the with older adults in that you know after hospitalization and end of life transitional care. And I will tell you, Caroline, I have always prided myself. We don't know each other well. I am, if, if, I, if people choose one word to define me, it's relational. That's what matters to me the most in life and professionally. And I really, I, I don't want to think I was arrogant about where I was as far as being empathetic for caregivers. I really felt like I was very sensitive and as competent as one can be to support caregivers as they're trying to navigate the system in that, you know, at that part of the continuum. And when my mother became ill and then my auntie suffered a life-threatening brain injury, I realized pretty quickly I actually didn't get it totally. And so that was honestly, that was the impetus for kind of making the shift. And whether it's, I still do a lot of teaching. So yes, I'm working with young people and traditional, you know, graduate students and what have you. I do a lot of teaching. I work with those who teach students. Mm-hmm. So I train teachers and for all of them, whether I'm working with a patient, a caregiver, or at the other end, the, the, the learners, the new professionals, that's the, the focus is listening for understanding, helping to model that and facilitate that in others and helping others appreciate what really matters the most and how can we really meet the need? So I, that's, a, that's a key word for me there is identifying what the need is and really focusing on what can we do to meet the need or who else needs to be involved to meet the need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as a profession, we've gotten a lot better at trying to understand what the patient is going through and there are even some 
you know, simulations we can go through to understand different conditions or in PT school, we all practice on ourselves, on each other. So we're very familiar with the patient role to an extent, but understanding the caregiver role, I think is something as a, as a profession we're behind in, and then you living it yourself and bringing it forward is very valuable to the rest of us. And even this is such a more minor example, but I've had a very sick dog for the past couple months. And even just the sleep deprivation aspect of that and the financial drain of veterinary bills and, you know, making potentially end of life decisions with the dog deciding the code status. Oh my goodness. I relate so much. I have a geriatric assisted living vet service myself right now an 18 cat and a 15 and a half year old dog who fell one night after I was teaching for 10 hours online and has been stuck in the garage and basement and it is it very much for for those of us who are pet people it it's yes (laughs) there's a lot to be to be learned there and I think for you and me to recognize, this is one thing that I emphasize too when I'm working with learners, is you bring yourself with you. You mm-hmm. don't check yourself at the door when you're going into a patient's home or when you're doing education with a caregiver or whether you're going into a hospital room. And so we should. I think, I think we used to maybe be a little reluctant to bring those personal experiences. You don't have to share them with every patient and caregiver. Mm-hmm. And what we learn from them I think is very powerful. So that's a great example. And I think most people can, many, many people can relate to that. Yeah, that's the freshest for me now. And I did grow up next door to my grandparents. So I did see a lot of, you know, what can happen across the lifespan with them. And like you said, it was something I didn't used to talk about a lot, but I think is, is relevant to how I can approach people as well. So what do you see as, as areas where relationships need to be built more or caregivers need to be supported more? So relationships within the care team primarily, or when, when somebody's in the, in the system? Sure. Yeah. I think, I think a big takeaway, and I I thought this would come up, I thought maybe later, and I wanted to be sure and remember, I think a big takeaway for caregivers and patients and for us is to, to be more uh, bold, if you will, more confident with bringing up things that are not. You mentioned traditional physical therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I know what that is. Again, I started in 1981. We're, we're kind of breaking the mold on that so that for future generations, what traditional physical therapy is will be, <laughs> our model will be historical physical yeah. therapy. <laughs> so we're changing what that encompasses. And I think that it takes individuals like us and newly educated PT assistants and PTs to keep pushing that envelope so that so that we're more bold, less reluctant to bring up things that are not traditional physical therapy. So I'm getting ready to have, I think, I think the best experience of my whole career where I will be working as part of an interprofessional team and this may seem common sense to your audience, and yet this is an exciting new thing where I will go into a room physically, pandemic conditions allowing, <laughs> physically masked, protected, safely, 
with the team and the patient will be there and we will come in the room together and meet the patient literally where she or he is. And the patient will describe for us what's going on. These are adult patients with cystic fibrosis. Oh, interesting. Okay. The team is pulmonologist, respiratory therapist, dietitian, social worker, PT, and there are some other individuals. And so after listening to the patient and what's, what's mattering or, you know, what, what's important to her or him at that time, we will each provide input. Okay. And so, yeah. And so what you and I have heard is this cliche of, we got it. We got to break down those silos. Well, what does that mean? It means that we literally come together. It doesn't have to be physically in the same space. It's that relationship of, valuing, first of all, recognizing what each other can bring and not being afraid to, to cross a line. Or um, I have a good friend who we graduated from PT school together with bachelor's degrees in 1989. And of course, now the entry level is doctorate. So a lot of change since then. She started her career as a PT assistant too. We're very good friends. And she says, you know, we need to stay in our lane. Just mm-hmm. everybody stay in your lane. Well, I beg to differ. I think we need to blur the lines that divide us into this is my lane, I'm staying here. And so I think that's the biggest thing with the relationship and for, for your audience who are caregivers and patients to recognize that it's okay. And please do ask your PT about sleep, about medications, about hydration. Ask your PT. We're not, we, know, we know where the line is, where the lanes are a hard stop. And then in terms of the relationship, it's all of us seeking to be part of a team where I know I'm safe to go to the dietitian, the pharmacist, and say, this is what I'm finding with the meds. Will you take a look? Because I'm thinking there's something in here that might be kind of, you know, a duplicate. I think the patient's getting too much of this. It's not up to me to make a change. This is what I see. We know, we know how to do that. And I think some people are reluctant to step into that. And I'm going to be a little ageist here and say, I think it's especially us older PTs. Again, bachelor's degree, how much pharmacology did I have in PT school? Not so much. We might have had to, you know, do a narrative report on different drug classifications or something. But I think every PT should be comfortable to receive the questions and then identify the appropriate resources within a healthy interprofessional relationship. Uh, when when that exists. And if it doesn't exist, we need to not just accept this is normal. It may be common. It shouldn't be normal. We need to break that norm, I think. Did I answer that as far as relationships? Yeah, I love it. One of the things, Sandy, I like about this team model from more of a patient perspective is you know that your care providers are actually talking to each other and thinking through your case. And then also it can be really nice to not have to repeat your story six times over for all the different people who visit you. So if you all come in just at the same time, you can talk more thoroughly and completely once and know that everyone involved with your care is talking to each other too, and actually thinking critically about your individual case. That's a really beautiful model. 
And I think that at this point, I want to say, I'm sure it was at least 15 years ago, it may have been a little bit longer, that there was a tremendous amount of buzz around a uniform electronic medical record that would follow you everywhere. And I think what you just, the way you just summarized, of course, the general public would assume and should assume that we do communicate with each other and that everybody is looking at the same story and the same background. And it is, it is not so. It's simply not so. We've got the EM, the electronic medical record system, the online documentation, and whether or not people don't access it because they don't have time or, or whether it's not up to date or accurate. So to your audience, I hate to say it, don't assume that there is this level of communication and collaboration because you know that you said something and you watched your provider type it into the computer. It's there. It doesn't mean that everybody has seen it before they work, before they see you. Yeah. Yeah. And just to put that in context, um, as physical therapists, we tend to have more time freedom with patients than most providers. But when I was in full-time clinical practice, I would get 15 minutes to prep for nine patients, which again, that was kind of generous compared to a lot of settings of only seeing nine patients in a day. But I could easily spend 15 minutes going through one person's record and still not see everything in there. And so to your point, it could, it could be there. I could have access to it, but it doesn't mean that it's being read or even, you know, even if it is being read, being retained <laughs> too. Right. Know? Or, or put into context, I think, so you were talking 15 minutes total, not per patient. Correct. 15 yes. minutes. Okay. So see, to me, this takes us into something we were talking about offline is the, the four, the four M's, which the first one being what matters Mm -hmm. um, so here's here's something and I use this as an example and I'll bet you I'll bet a number of people who view this can relate to this we, uh, all right so what we did is at some point and again I'm re reflecting on my experience over four decades is we realized oh hey it would be good to collect this information so it's there <laughs> and then we won't have to continue to ask the patient about it. Okay, so even if you're going to a physical therapist um, or you're going to an OBGYN or your primary care, whatever, you'll be, you might fill out a form. You typically will. You might do it even online before you go, which that seems very efficient. Mm -hmm. And so you, you're asked, you're invited to tell your healthcare story in a record. And so I try to be very thoughtful about that. Whatever they're asking me about, if they're asking me about my family history, I want to say now, oh yeah, my mom had that and this was on my dad's side and the example that always sticks with me. A lot of providers, including PTs, will ask about um, maternal history for, for women, mm -hmm. right? And so you fill in how many pregnancies have you had, how many live births, surgeries, how many living children do you have? And I, I spend some time on that because I have an involved maternal history. 
and I fill it in. And then when I go, because Caroline, this matters to me. I said I'm relational and a big part of that is around the fact that I am a mother. Mm-hmm. And so that that's those are the relationships that matter to me. And so I go in to whatever provider asks me that, waiting for them to say, I see here, you know, this about your history. Tell me more about that. How does that impact you physically? How does that impact you psycho-emotionally? And you know what? They don't bring it up. And not even the OBGYN. And I'm thinking, and you know, that's, uh, I switched to a new practitioner and it's a woman and I was waiting to have this important conversation because it matters to me. Don't bring it up. So my thought is, don't ask me. Don't ask me. If you need to get some information from me, because you've already kind of narrowed your focus, then only ask me about that. That's better to me than ask me everything and then don't, don't respond. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason I mentioned that, that four M's in this context is because I think that that is a good place to start is what matters to you. Maybe that's our first intake, not just what brings you here. Mm-hmm. What, what matters to you? What do you need that I may be able to help you with? Is that, I don't know, is that unrealistic? Is that too Pollyannish to think that's a good place to start? Well, let's, so I think for those of us who are healthcare providers who may be listening, we can reorient ourselves to focus on that in our approach to our patients. But let's say someone is not a healthcare provider, but still wants to communicate what matters in an appointment. Do you have any suggestions for that? Yes. So the example there, and I'm also getting ready to start at the downtown Augusta not-for-profit community health services, where I will be working with un- and underinsured Augustans who do not have access to physical therapy services otherwise because they don't have insurance, which is that's a whole different, that's a whole different podcast access. And the example that I'm thinking of, and so I'll be working with students, I'll be doing mentorship and supervision of residents and graduate PT students. And I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to introduce this 4Ms model to them and encourage them to start with this. I I could prove myself wrong. (laughs) I'm excited and hopeful that I'm right to start with asking the patient what matters to you. So here, let's say we have a patient who has had uh, in the past their leg amputated and maybe they have a prosthesis and they haven't been using it because it's uncomfortable or they've had some weight changes or something's not right. And so their caregiver brings them with the prosthesis into the clinic. And on the surface, clearly as a PT, I'm going to focus on that limb and that device, that prosthesis. However, if I say to the caregiver, so, you know, tell me what's going on. What what matters to you and the patient? What matters to you most today? If I really mean it and I open it up, that caregiver may say, we're not sleeping. Mm -hmm. Has nothing to do with the prosthesis. We're, We're, he's not sleeping and therefore I'm not sleeping. Can you help? we can help. Mm -hmm. We can help with that. Because if that's what matters most to them, if you don't, you know, address that, you know, it just, the rest of it isn't going to come together. And so 
what if you fix the prosthesis or you help the limb get back in the right shape? If, if people aren't sleeping, so, and can we help with that? Yes, we can. And so to the caregivers and patients who are viewing this, you think about what matters. And if it's sleep, even if you're going in there with a, a prosthesis or back pain or shoulder difficult, you know, problems moving your shoulder, if what matters most to you is that you're not sleeping or you're feeling you just don't have any energy or you've had a headache, whatever it is, at least say so. And, and you know what? It's fair and right for you to expect whoever it is on your healthcare team to respond to what matters most to you. They may not be able to help you directly. They definitely should respond and you should expect them to respond. Yeah, it could even be a good screening tool to see if it is the right care provider for you. So if they don't respond and there's an option for someone else that you may save a lot of time and frustration by just going ahead and switching. True, very true. Yeah. And I know, you know, from the therapist point of view, sometimes we can get really frustrated if we do, for example, work on the prosthesis, getting the fit perfect, and then the patient never uses it. And that can be very frustrating for the therapist and can start to have some, you know, negative feelings towards the patient. But if, like you said, we just asked at the beginning, what mattered, then it would save a lot of time and, and energy and just actually focusing on the right problem too. Cause if someone never has the energy to walk with the prosthesis, which is very energy demanding, it's a lot more demanding than normal walking, um, and focus on sleep for a session or two, then, then it could be potentially be a much better outcome for everyone. Absolutely. And um, when you talked about it can be frustrating for the provider and the the way we frame it, I think you'll really appreciate this, is we say the patient's non-compliant. That's my trigger word. (laughs) Yes. And so I totally teach this. I try and encourage or facilitate that reframing it to they're not adhering. So the compliance has an element of judgment. Mm-hmm. Whereas adherence is a fact. It's just a fact. We, we did all this work with whatever, and they're not doing the thing that we, that we set as a goal, even if they, someone would agree and say, yes, I'd like to use my prosthesis. Yes, I want to walk. Well, okay, so that's the goal. There's so much that goes into that. So let's back up what matters to you. And I strongly encourage your listeners, viewers, to look for those providers who also include coaching. You know, coaching is encouraging, helping me find the resources or or helping me figure out what will work for me. What am I willing to do based on what matters the most to me? Otherwise, one of my triggers is to go into somebody's home, whether it's a family member. I've got stuff right downstairs. My husband had open heart surgery this summer. I can go downstairs and open the folder that's got the home exercises tucked down in the papers that never came out of the folder. And, you know, let's just, everybody goes home with 
a piece of paper and some exercises drawn on it, or, or maybe they're stuck up on the refrigerator. <laughs> and if you're, if you're a patient or a caregiver, we, we know that maybe you don't comply with doing, pulling out this piece of paper and doing three sets of 10, three times a day. It's not that you're bad. It's not that you're not doing what we're telling you to, and that's why you're not getting better. It's that we're missing the mark somehow. What, what would work for you? It's not just, you know, can you read the instructions? Are they big enough or is it in the, the correct language? Can you follow the pictures? It's not that. There's more. There's so much more to it. And yet, we're going to send you home with a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, that's really what got me into the work of coaching myself was when I've been a patient, you know, I could easily be labeled as non-compliant with various things. You know, I can see it from that side of not even doing what I profess, <laughs> you know, in terms of exercises and so much of it is behavior change related and focusing on what matters to you, your own goals. What will you realistically do? Cause I think a lot of us can get it together to do something for a week or two, but that that's not going to move the mark long-term. It might alleviate some things, but it's not going to change a chronic condition if we only exercise for a week or eat well for one week it's better than not doing it at all but what do you do with the long haul stuff yeah and I think um, for my life I'm a patient too I have on standby at any time three PTs I have a foot guy I have a a kind of a trunk musculoskeletal guy and then I have a total healing guy (laughs) my PTs are all they're all males right now (laughs) And I I frame everything. This is me speaking as a person and a patient, if you will, a consumer of healthcare services. I'm picky when I select my providers. Mm -hmm. I frame everything I do in the context of a practice. Mm -hmm. And so I I didn't think about that when, you know, we were talking about what we really, what key takeaways. I would encourage your viewers, whether they're carers or patients or professionals, Frame everything as a practice. So for us to practice mindfully focusing on hearing the patient, listening for understanding what matters to you, and then asking ourselves, what then based on that, what does this individual need? How can I meet the need, support the need, or help find the resource that will meet the need? Those three options. So that's my practice. If I'm a patient, my practice is the PT suggested that my, the swelling in my legs would be better if I do ankle pumps. I'm not, I'm not focused on the goal of, you know, how many millimeters less swelling I'll have when she takes out the tape measure next time or whatever it is. I'm going to focus on, I'm going to just practice doing some ankle pumps. There, I did it. Okay. I'm going to, I feel okay with that. I'm going to practice it again. Just practice it. It's not always about that. What's the old adage? It's not about the destination. It's the journey. Mm-hmm. I frame everything as a practice, whether I'm trying to cut down on how much coffee I drink. It's an everyday practice. Today, yeah. maybe I drink one less shot of espresso. <laughs> I practiced it. 
that really takes the pressure off too. And it's not such a, a performance in a way of getting everything perfectly, but can we just think about it enough to make some sort of positive change, no matter how small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what leads to, as you know, ultimate change in behavior that leads to ultimate achievement of goals or improvement in a condition. And if we can't do that, it leads to enhanced quality of life based on how we define that. I believe. All right. So we got the matters. Can you, before we go into the other M's, can you provide a little context about what the four M's are and where they came from? Okay. So ultimately this is a a model that the context is age-friendly health systems. And this was something new to me just last year. And once I watched a program at our combined sections meeting online, and it was, it was really good. I got very excited about it. There's a professor who happens to be a dear friend, David Taylor at Mercer University. The age-friendly health system is, it helps patients, carers, and caregivers ensure that their care is being provided in a, in a system where the complex needs of older adults are maybe made more manageable because it speaks to the culture of, of the, the setting, whether it's a clinic or one floor on a, at a hospital. I, I would say this is a, a, a new model. It's important for uh, patients and carers to ask to ask you if, if you have a loved one or your, your person that you're caring for is going into a hospital or skilled nursing, which you would assume skilled nursing are all age friendly. Not everybody's fully on board with the model. We know the principles. <laughs> it's the matter of operationalizing them. And so it's about having a culture and a setting where the focus is ensuring that the care is focused on meeting the more complex and unique needs of of older adults, making it more manageable for all of us. It's not just about making it easier for the providers, the healthcare team, also for the care and most especially for the individual, for the patient or client. So it's it's a framework. I use the word culture. This is one of those things where, again, I, I encourage and facilitate with learners or, or even seasoned therapists who take my educational programs. We just, we have to promote, reinforce, don't give up, role model. You, you, can't, you can't look away. It takes a, a champion. I don't even know if that's an appropriate term anymore. It takes a champion and then a team of champions to say, no, this is really what we're about. And ultimately, in my mind, it's a pay now or pay later. And when I can, I opt to invest up front because if we don't, then we're going to pay later. And the price that we pay is our patients don't do as well. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not acceptable. That should, so if we invest in a mentality and a commitment to our care, the culture and our settings being age friendly, we invest up front. It's going to, if we make it real, it's going to improve the outcomes for everyone, most especially the patient, which also 
helps us hit all of our benchmarks, even related to money mm-hmm. and productivity, all of that. Those are realities since in our culture, healthcare is a business. But yeah, ultimately, it helps to us to avoid the costs, even in terms of an individual's quality of life. So, and so to your listeners and your viewers, don't accept that somebody's got the nice age-friendly logo on a poster in the hallway or in the lobby. That's good. Look for it. Age-friendly health systems. It is, it's an Institute for Healthcare Improvement Initiative, IHI, Institute for Healthcare Improvement in partnership with the American Hospital Association and the Catholic Health Association of the United States, the CHA. Big, big organizations that promote quality, effective healthcare. So look for that logo and know that it's a thing and insist, advocate to ensure that your team members know (laughs) that there's something that goes along with that. And you should be able to tell it and see it and feel it and hear it if you're a patient in a setting that says, we are an age-friendly health system. It's got a nice little logo. (laughs) If you're not seeing it, feeling it, hearing it, seeing it, or um, experiencing it, then bring it up. And that's where that advocacy comes in. You say to somebody, I see that you're an age-friendly health system. Can you tell me more about that? So what would a well-functioning age-friendly health system look like or feel like? So it would be more efficient where the patient is not having to repeat their, their history and their story every time that people who come into the, into the room or into whatever, or the patient comes into that setting, that, that we know what matters to you. We know what the focus of your time with us is. Obviously, it would be an environment that is safe, physically safe and accessible for older adults. The, the framework that's the, the four M's is one of the foundations. And I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you what the four M's are, what matters. So here, your team, this is what it would feel like, look like, is your team knows and aligns your care with your, your goals and your preferences, including, but not limited to end of life care and across all settings of care. So what matters to you? That's the first M. Medication, this is huge. It is so big. Again, I'm sure you've done, if you haven't, I'm sure you have it on your radar to do episodes just on medication. So age-friendly medication that doesn't interfere with what matters. Mm -hmm. And also then, so the medication, it age-friendly, so it doesn't interfere with what matters to you. You choose what matters. That's the foundation. And then the other two M's, medication that does not interfere with mentation. So your ability to function um, mentally as well as you possibly can, even if that means you are distressed or sad or in pain. We, obviously, we want to control pain. That's huge. It's all based on what matters to you. And then medication that does not interfere with your mobility. 
And we all know, I'm not sure for your audience how many people have heard it framed like this. We all know the negative, the adverse reactions or effects of medication that then impairs mobility, which then leads to problems like pneumonia or skin breakdown or, you know, bowel and bladder problems, just on and on. And so that that medication So the foundation is what matters, the medication that doesn't interfere with what matters, that doesn't interfere with your mentation or your mobility. And we can do we can do better with that. Yes, there are times when you may have to take a medication that does have one of those effects. It should be selected very mindfully and monitored. And we we fall short there again. It's if we invest in that careful selection with the pharmacist, the physician, whoever's making these recommendations. And then all of us watch to see, yes, that takes time. Yep, it takes time and attention. It may not feel productive. And yet in the long run, if it avoids an event, Mm -hmm. a fall or a skin breakdown or pneumonia, heaven forbid, then is it worth it that we all invest up front? I say yes. Yeah. Just thinking through some examples in my own life, one of my grandmothers who was like 90 pounds on a good day, she tiny, tiny woman was on antidepressants for decades, probably starting in the eighties. And we suspect that that's what led to a lot of her mentation changes at the end of her life, but no one had to my knowledge, no one had really thought critically of, should she still be on this medication? Is the dose appropriate? Do we understand the long-term effects of this drug being continued for decades? So just one small example of the role medications can play in our lives. There's now a whole field of de-prescribing. So the science of how do you start taking away some of these medications, what order to remove them, how to do it safely that our medical and pharmacy colleagues are embarking in. Definitely. And, and for your viewers, your physical therapist, no matter when he or she graduated from school, should, should, must look at what medications you're taking, think about it, not just write them down or ask questions, think about it and just take note of anything that could be problematic. Either maybe maybe it's something underdosed. So much of the time people come home with medications from an acute care stay and the doses stay the same, mm-hmm. even though you're, everything is different when you're in the hospital. My daughter, who's a nurse and I were just talking about this and you know, patients come home with changes in their medications for diabetes or blood pressure or what have you. And then once they're home, they stay on the same dose. And that's one of the number one reasons patients go back to the hospital medication issues. So all of your providers should be looking. It's not to say, once again, I have to emphasize physical therapists may not change or recommend if, if we see something when we're in a patient's home or the patient's in the clinic and it looks wrong, we, we get on the phone immediately. We don't say, oh, don't take that medicine. We do not. Or we don't say, take more of that. 
So just, you know, rest assured, I'm not saying what I'm saying is that we're all, it's, it's called medication reconciliation. I still, I see again, so much, so much room for improvement there. And on the flip side, the anecdote that you told about your grandmother, I use with permission, my mother and her sister, I could, the two, the case of the two sisters, I've used it with hundreds of students around Georgia of different professions, including a medical student. And I give them a little bit of background about these two older women, very different older women. And in one, in one patient's case, she is immobile, very sedentary, very overweight. She has diabetes. She has depression. You know, she's, she has other, other issues. So a long list of issues. And I ask the learners, which of these do you think is the priority? And I'm telling you from firsthand experience, the priority in this individual's case was depression. Mm -hmm. This individual had untreated depression. And if her team had really thought about it and looked at it and communicated about it, it would have been a game changer. But instead, you know, one of, one of the, the patient went to 12 weeks of outpatient physical therapy with the best PT in the area one-on-one care, an hour per patient. The issue was the patient couldn't stand up from a chair at home, 12 weeks. Oh, well, your Medicare B dollars are gone now, so we're going to discharge you. That patient went home, could not get up out of a chair. Mm -hmm. The underlying issue was not the fact that, you know, she needed to engage her leg muscles and push harder and do the one, two, three, or whatever it was, that was not the issue. The issue was she had untreated chronic depression. And the PT should have picked up on that. Do we treat depression? We do interventions that help with depression. Absolutely, positively, we do. Do we treat it or prescribe meds for it? Nope. (laughs) Do we refer patients who need help in that area? Yes. Yeah, so I think what you've described well for us, Sandy, is, you know, how the healthcare system in some pockets is trying to be better and getting better, but how in our, even with our own family members, we're seeing that it it's not always what it needs to be. So what do you offer or recommend for people who are actively engaged in the healthcare system right now to help get the best outcome for themselves or their family members, knowing that they're probably not entering into a perfect system. Yeah, I would say the number one thing, and let's, we'll frame it in terms of advocacy. So speaking up, standing up to ensure that your, as the carer and your, your patient, your loved one's needs are being met because there there's help. There's help out there. Yes. In an ideal world, we should all assume and be able to take for granted that every healthcare team member is also most interested in ensuring that you have the best care. Unfortunately, in our system right now, because of various demands and the model, whatever the regulations, I'm just going to say that's not always the case. I can guarantee you that almost every provider went into the field to do just that. And then the realities of the system that we step into make it challenging. 
And people do sadly get burned out and sometimes just step in line and forget. We forget sometimes what our why, why did I want to do this? Why am I doing this today? So the challenge to you, the need for you is to advocate on your own behalf and the patient's behalf by asking questions, by stating what matters most to you. I, I don't like to frame things in a negative way, but I'm going to say, don't assume. Don't assume that all of your team members know what matters to you or know what medications you're taking or what problem you had last week or your maternal health history. Don't assume those things. If it matters to you, you advocate for yourself by speaking up. You can find people who are health navigators. It doesn't have to be someone who already works in the system. There are private navigators who will help you learn what questions do I ask? How do I ask the questions? Who do I ask the questions of? When do I know, okay, that's a hard stop? Or, no, you take it, now you take it again. You don't accept that answer. You, need, you, you might need a coach. And this navigator or coach, and Carolyn and I both do some of these things, both of these things, is, is someone who will help you identify the, the correct resource, which might, I mentioned offline, it might be something like a fact sheet that Medicare provides for us. I don't see Medicare or the government as, as an enemy in this. I dig into the resources and I'm telling you that when you do, there are resources just for you, carers and patients, that tell you exactly what are the conditions under which Medicare will pay for these services. You might be surprised when you can find that resource, when someone helps you find it, and you read the very plain language, you might be surprised that, oh, that's not what I heard. They told me I can't have this, or they told me I have to go there. I'm telling you, there's always an exception. And what you, what you may need you might not have time to spend, oh my goodness, Caroline, what, what would be a, a time frame of the Medicare rabbit hole if somebody's trying to find that one detail? You can go down, you could spend hours. Weeks. <laughs> yeah, you could spend what you just know. The biggest takeaway I would say is know that there's someone out there, and sometimes it is someone within the system a social worker, a patient navigator, a patient, what else might they be called? Liaison. Case manager. A case manager. There's someone. And I want to be clear on this too. I think this is a huge takeaway. Be very specific in your question because I mentioned burnout. I don't want to make it sound like we're all just exhausted and you know giving up. That's not the case. When you go to that case manager or the liaison or your physical therapist or your PA at the cardiologist or the surgeon's office, and you say, I really want to dig into the medications. I really want to look at them and make sure, is he taking the right dose? Is there something that could be changed? I'm telling you that you'll see them go, oh, oh yeah, I can help with that because they fall just like everyone else. They fall into a routine, into a rut check the boxes, get on the computer, 
you know, enter the vital signs. But when somebody says to them, oh, did you say my blood pressure is this? Well, when I went last week to, you know, whoever, which by the way, your PTs should be checking your blood pressure. When I went to the PT, they said it was that. Can we talk about that a little bit? It gets their attention. It gets our attention to say, oh, here's a patient who's also paying attention to their needs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, it takes energy. And that's why you need a, a good a coach, someone, whether it's a friend or, you know, call me and I'll just say, you, you, you got this in terms of saying, I, I really want to talk about this. This matters to me. I need, I need to speak with you about it. Yeah. I think it's such an important role and just again thinking about personal experience of when I've been a patient I kind of waffle between being an advocate for myself kind of checking behind all my providers I think I probably know too much and know how to (laughs) get get into the literature and that can be good when I'm feeling good and have the capacity to do that but when I when I'm not feeling well or need to kind of trust the care I'm receiving, that's when I usually wish I had someone else on my team taking on that advocate role for me, because, you know, at a certain point as a patient, you do need to trust the care you're providing and not second guess every single thing or go back and fact check everything. But if someone else was doing that for you, if there were concerns, I could see that being very beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I've had plenty of PTs call me for help mm-hmm. when they're when they're the, the the caregiver or even in some cases the patient. So yeah, that applies to all of us. It mm-hmm. is it's different. You bring up an interesting point. It's different when we're the patient or we're the caregiver, and mm-hmm. we learn a lot through that experience as well. Yep. Yeah, there's a great book that um, it's written specifically related to cancer. It's called Cancer Chameleon. But it goes through, I think, nine different roles you can have and delegate in a patient navigation experience. And so the advocate is one of the roles in there, as is. It's a helpful framework if you're starting to think about differentiating differentiating how you are as a patient or a caregiver during the different phases of a disease course. So Sandy, if someone wanted to reach out to you to learn more or to, to use your advocacy and navigation services, what's the best way for them to find you? My company, like I mentioned, is IP Collaborative, and IP stands for Interprofessional. And the website is simpleipcollaborative.com. And my email address is Sandy, with a Y, S-A-N-D-Y, at ipcollaborative.com. And if you, on the website, there's a contact us form. And even if you want to just chit chat or get, get a recommendation, you can send a form and I can respond by email or obviously I'm very talky. (laughs) So, or a phone call or a zoom meeting and just, you know, share experiences. And, and uh, I like to always build my network. So those are the easiest ways to reach me. Great. And I always learn something talking from you. So I'm sure everyone else will as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any last parting words of wisdom before we sign off? 
just like I say, advocate for yourself and um, expect more. I'm, I say I do believe we should expect more from ourselves and from from the system as a whole. So you know, help us push that envelope, and we appreciate that. And thank you very much for this opportunity. I always learn something as well. I'm grateful to Perry for connecting us. Yes, me look too. forward to more contact in the coming year. Happy New Year to everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sandy. Thank you. Bye. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and does not create a provider-patient relationship between us. If you have questions about your health, please speak to a qualified health professional. If you would like to learn more about working with me as your qualified health professional, please visit carolinemorris.com. Did you know that gratitude is good for your health? If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. To keep the connection going, subscribe to Elder Health Connection on your favorite podcast player to get immediate access to upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. With love and gratitude, Caroline.